3: Hi Molly, it's Lauren 25 from the UK again. (laughs) Hi, I just wanted to say how much you've inspired me to progress into the field that I want to do. I'm combining my theatre training with the, the, the message that I want to share about the social care system in the UK and the the lack thereof of support for young care leavers coming out of care and I'm going to do my final project all about it and uh, I just stumbled upon a piece that I made when I was in university called um, sunshine with a chance of showers um, about borderline personality disorder and what it's like to live with it I'd love to send it over to you sometime so you could watch it obviously I know you get so many voicemails um, but my friend says it's so good and it's a really beautiful way to describe it and it's all very creative and stuff i just love you molly you've been you've been so detrimental and and, and helpful in my life and you've helped me progress to where i am now and i'm all, i'm so thankful to you molly and i hope you're doing well really do i am
0: so thankful for you Welcome to Back from the Borderline. I'm your host, Molly, and I don't want to talk to your personality. I want to talk to your soul. The idea of alchemy is to reduce something with fire, burning it down so that something new can rise from the ashes. From chaos comes clarity. Through working with and integrating the concepts we'll explore together, you'll emerge transformed, standing in the ashes of who you used to be. I want to thank Lauren for this beautiful voicemail. It definitely made me cry, thankfully I wiped all of my tears and boogers away before I recorded this so that you don't have to hear me sniffling, but I am so profoundly touched by these voicemails. I struggle with imposter syndrome myself, and getting these voicemails reminds me that I'm doing something good, by just doing my best and sharing my own journey, the fact that can help other people feel seen and maybe provide them with little aha moments that they can use to fuel their own fire towards their own individual recovery. That means everything to me. And Lauren, I would love to read your piece, so feel free to send it to me at borderline at gmail.com. And I just wish you the best. And I can hear it in your voice that you have so much to give so much love in your heart and you're working on yourself and I just know that whatever you put your mind to is going to be a success and I'm just, i sending you the biggest virtual big sister hug ever. It's so important that all of us with these big feelings, these big emotions that feel so alone and isolated and have been labeled with some of these really stigmatizing and harmful mental health disorder labels that we come together and alchemize this stuff together. That's why I talk so much about alchemy. Solve et coagula is my favorite Latin alchemical phrase, and solve et coagula means dissolve and coagulate. Dissolve and come back together. We have to release some of this stuff that no longer serves us so that we can rise as a something new from the ashes why I say you'll be standing in the ashes of who you used to be. We have to shed these things that don't belong to us. Give them back. Give back the shame. Give back the dysfunctional roles. And so with that, let's dive into part three of our exploration of scapegoating and the results of being chronically invalidated and smeared by your own family being seen as the troubled one, the broken one, the dramatic one, the problematic one. It is my hope that this series can help you begin to shed what was never yours to begin with, to be able to shine a light on these shadowy corners so that you too can rise from the ashes. Let's get into it. So on the last episode, we talked a little about disenfranchised grief and what we'll need to grieve if we've been scapegoated by our family of origin, because there are repressed, suppressed feelings of grief, anger, shame, rage, all of it that are living within you that you have likely not processed digested i really like the word digested when it comes to repressed emotions because just like food these feelings have to be chewed up soaked in felt and then eliminated but they have to go through that process otherwise they're just sitting in our guts like constipation and yes i am comparing repressed emotion to like constipated compacted poop in our intestines because if that happens you're going to get sick if people are constipated for a long period of time and you are literally soaking in just like shit that is sitting in your intestines you can literally get sick and die from this and you can get sick and die from constipated emotions too it just takes a lot longer they're actually starting to see that repressed anger can literally manifest as different types of cancer. They're starting to see this now. And I guarantee, mark my words, I'm going to be willing to bet this. I'm recording this in August, 2023. And I think if we listen to this episode in the future, I'm going to be on the quote unquote, right side of history, where we're going to be seeing more and more studies coming out that are going to confirm this. So, while I may not have a million different studies to point to, I recently read Gabor Mate's new book, which I highly recommend. It's called The Myth of Normal. Gabor Mate is a medical doctor and also a specialist in trauma, and he interviewed many doctors and nurses in his book, and particularly nurses who he believes really spend the most time with patients and make these connection points. And many of these doctors and nurses went on record that even though they can't point to why exactly, or maybe even measure it in any kind of medical study, they can tell that repressed emotions, people-pleasing, repressed anger can in the long term, manifest in things like multiple sclerosis, cancer, rheumatoid arthritis, different other diseases like Crohn's disease, lupus, all of these things. Many of them start as emotions that we don't want to take a look at and then they become symptoms and then dis-ease, right? We feel dis-ease can turn into disease. It's all connected. And that's why today we're going to be talking about the different stages of grief and why it's so essential that if you identify with toxic shame, like in the last series that we did, and if you identify with this dysfunctional family role of the scapegoat, and you're experiencing all of the symptoms and signs that we discussed in the last episode, that you need to move through these stages of grief. It's essential. Because you need to process, metabolize, and digest these repressed feelings. If you, like me, were dealing with chronic autoimmune things, chronic pain, I was, really bad digestive issues, things that are just constantly happening, you get tests and there's no real results, the doctors say everything's fine, your blood work is fine, really think about this. It could and is likely connected to repressed emotions. First, we're going to be talking about the five stages of grief. I want to preface this with this little tidbit. None of this is linear. You may have heard this phrase that has almost become a cliche at this point. Healing is not linear. And what that means is healing doesn't happen in a straight line. Healing's not the same for everybody. And so if this doesn't exactly match your experience, or when I list these stages of grief, you're not necessarily going to move through them one by one by one, but it's necessary for you to probably touch into each of these different phases for you to adequately metabolize this disenfranchised grief from toxic shaming and scapegoating. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross was a Swiss-American psychiatrist pioneer in the field of something called thanatology. Thanatology is the study of death and dying. She's best known for her work on the stages of grief and her contributions to improving care for terminally ill patients. Her interest in studying grief and death was sparked by her experiences during medical school where she witnessed patients dying alone and she felt like their emotional needs were often overlooked. Kubler-Ross is renowned for her model of the stages of grief, which she based on these interactions that she had with her terminally ill patients. These grief stages were originally outlined in her book, On Death and Dying, which she published in 1969. And her model initially had five stages, but she later added a sixth stage to account for personal growth and acceptance. I want to next explore these stages of grief that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross made through the lens of recovering from the disenfranchised grief that accompanies recovery from the dysfunctional family role of scapegoat in your family system. So the first stage of grief is denial. So initial response to loss where you're struggling to accept the reality of the situation, that's that's kind of where you're at at the very beginning. You don't want to believe it. And in the context of recovering from disenfranchised grief as a scapegoat in your family system, this might involve initially refusing to acknowledge the emotional pain and loss associated with this dysfunctional family role. Denial is a defense mechanism, it acts to shield us from overwhelming emotions. And in order to move through the grieving process and metabolize all of this, as we just talked about in the intro, have to be able to get past stage one of denial and move to stage two which is anger as reality begins to set in and you moved through the denial phase which means you finally acknowledged all of this emotional pain you've opened the floodgates you are likely to begin to feel frustration and anger about what you went through for A scapegoated person recovering from this invisible, disenfranchised grief of all the different losses you will have had to endure that we detailed in the last episode, this could involve directing anger at family members who contributed to the role of scapegoat or at the unfairness of the situation. And anger is a way that we can use to express the suppressed emotions that were invalidated for so, so long. The important thing here to recognize is that anger is important. Anger can be healthy and it is a stage of the grieving process that we have to go through. We move from denial then to anger. But the problem is, is that if we stay stuck in one of these two stages, we are setting ourselves up for disease in the long run, and a really, really unhealthy and unhappy life. So what's the next stage after anger? It's stage three, which is bargaining. So in this stage, someone might try to make deals or bargains to change the situation or somehow alleviate their pain. So with our same context, viewing these stages of grief through the lens of recovering from scapegoat abuse and this disenfranchised grief that comes along with it, this could involve making internal promises to ourselves to somehow rectify or overcome the past experiences, seeking a way to regain lost connections or self-worth. Let's look at some ways how that might play out. Let's talk about some specific examples of how a scapegoated adult child might engage in this bargaining stage of grief so first you might engage in something called the promise to excel the adult child the adult scapegoated child might promise themselves that they will excel in their career their education or personal achievements to somehow prove their worth and counteract these negative messages they received from their dysfunctional family If this is you, you might believe that somehow achieving success will somehow earn you the recognition, acceptance, love, and validation that you never received as a scapegoated child. Another way how you might engage in bargaining in this stage of the grieving process is reconnecting with your family. So, in an effort to regain your lost connections, You might attempt to reconnect with your family members who ostracized or distanced themselves from you. You might believe that by repairing these relationships, doing whatever it takes, even if that means sacrificing your own needs and ignoring the problems and shoving them under the rug, you can finally gain acceptance and belonging within your family. You might also bargain by approval-seeking behaviors. You might constantly seek approval from authority figures, maybe your bosses, mentors, or peers in an attempt to replace the lack of approval that you received from your family. You might hope that this external validation will fill the void left by years of being scapegoated by your family. And you probably might even be doing some of this stuff unconsciously. I found that I did this. I always. While I had a problem with authority at the very same time. Like it was very easy for me to split on authority figures. I desperately wanted them to see me as capable and approve of me, and when they didn't, it was like my whole sense of self just completely disintegrated. When I was trying to quote unquote make it in music, if a label executive or an A&R like didn't like my music, I would completely question my entire identity as an artist even though I really believed what I was doing. It's because I was approval seeking to such an extent that I was abandoning myself. Another way that you might engage in this third stage of grief is a bargaining is by overcompensating. So let me know if this resonates with you. You might overcompensate for your perceived shortcomings that you have internalized by your scapegoating family by becoming overly helpful, overly generous, and really accommodating in your relationships, which might even lead you to feeling burnt out and like passive aggressive and feeling like no one ever does anything for me, right? These kind of feelings, if you understand, cause hard relate on that. I do that. This behavior could stem from a desire to prove your value and erase the negative stigma associated with this scapegoat role that you have been labeled with. Another way of bargaining in this stage of grief is self-improvement pacts. So you might make pacts with yourself like promises, you know, a pact, like imagine like two little kids were making a pact, right? Cut our, cut our hands and then blood handshake kind of thing. You're doing this with yourself you're engaging in packs with yourself to improve yourself. I'm going to go to therapy. I'm going to go join all these self-improvement programs. I'm going to take this seminar, um, anything, because you believe that if you become a better version of you, you can somehow rewrite the narrative and distance yourself from the role that you were assigned as a child. And you're, but the important part is there's nothing wrong with self-improvement, but if you are repressing and suppressing and not looking at, and this is engaging in bargaining, maybe not the best. And you have to eventually move past this. Another way of bargaining in this stage three of grieving is idealizing relationships. So the adult child of scapegoating abuse might idealize relationships, believing that, finding the perfect partner or forming the perfect deep friendships will fill this emotional void left by your dysfunctional family. And you could see these relationships maybe as a way to finally experience the love and connection that you so deeply want. And the thing is, is that you'll know if this is coming from kind of a more dysfunctional place, because you're going to feel like you desperately need these people. And if they're gone, there's no you left. There's nothing wrong with having your cup filled by amazing, healthy connections, but there needs to be balance of feeling like, okay, but if they're not there, I'm okay too because I love myself, right? Another way of bargaining in stage three of the grieving process is spiritual or philosophical bargains. So some individuals dealing with scapegoating abuse might turn to spirituality or philosophy, making internal promises to themselves to live a certain way, practice certain beliefs, or adhere to particular dogmatic values. And these promises might be seen as a way to find meaning and purpose beyond the pain of the past. And again, spirituality is incredibly healing. I have found, as I call it, my own pick-and-mix bag of spirituality after undergoing some pretty serious religious-type trauma, not nearly to the extreme that some people go through, but just I really felt profoundly terrified and traumatized by a lot of mainstream Christianity, fundamentalist Christianity growing up in the Midwest. Finding my own relationship with different types of spirituality and making my own way and not listening to what any particular dogmatic thing that's coming at me has been so empowering. But many people can engage in what's called spiritual bypassing, where they're just kind of repressing all of their stuff and becoming really dogmatic about a religion. And this can be also like new age spirituality, right? Where you're like buying, I talk shit so much on like divine feminine courses, (laughs) but you know, like you're like, you're buying like 25 divine feminine courses for $4,444 because four, 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 four is a magic angel number. You're looking at angel numbers on your fucking microwave, or maybe you're joining like a Church that I like to call them these big, huge, like fundamentalist christian churches where you just it is respect thy mother and father above all else put all your feelings aside and trust in god right but also give the church all your money these kind of like really fucked up also kind of abusive communities you just become a victim of another abusive community so it's really important to recognize when you are engaging in spiritual or philosophical beliefs or practices as a bargaining process of the grieving process. So the last way that we could engage in bargaining as this third stage of the grieving process as an adult scapegoated child would be setting conditions for forgiveness. So how this might look is that you might set conditions for forgiving your family members who played a role in your scapegoating and you might bargain with yourself promising to forgive them if certain actions or certain changes happen within the family. It's really important to recognize that all these bargaining behaviors are coping mechanisms aimed at dealing with the pain and the wounds caused by this disenfranchised grief of inhabiting this dysfunctional scapegoat role. And the thing is, some of these behaviors, it's a paradox. Some can contribute to personal growth, positive growth, but then others might perpetuate unhealthy patterns. It's really important that we like the uh Oracle at Delphi says know thyself. You have to know yourself, be in your body and know when things are coming from a balanced, grounded, healthy place and when they might be coping mechanisms. And that's part of growing and learning who we truly are and it is a process, a lifetime journey but working through these bargaining tendencies in a healthy way often can involve therapy or counseling, right? So we can gain deeper insight into these coping mechanisms. But the idea is this, that we want to develop healthier strategies, cultivate self-compassion and self-worth independent of this external validation because healing from this disenfranchised grief is not going to come from the outside. It's going to come from the inside. But the tragic part is, is that so many of us spend many, many years, myself included, beating our heads against the metaphorical wall, trying desperately to find it on the outside in people, places, and things, but it doesn't work because no matter where you go, there you are. The next phase of the grieving process is depression. So once you've moved through denial, anger, and bargaining, maybe you're so fucking tired of all of these things. You've been spiritually bypassing. You've engaged in the... Promising yourself to excel. You've tried to be the best person. You've achieved things. You've tried to diminish yourself and put all your feelings aside to reconnect with your family, seeking approval, buying all the self improvement things, idealizing people, places, or things. Really, all of this stuff. And you're like, fuck, none of it's working. I still feel horrible. This is when the reality of the loss. And its impact really sets in. And it's common to experience sadness, despair, and feelings of hopelessness. And for an adult child of scapegoating abuse, this could involve confronting the deep emotional wounds caused by being labeled and treated as the dumping ground for your family trauma, being kind of pinpointed as the problem. There is so much hurt there. This stage is really important because it offers an opportunity for processing and acknowledging the depth of the pain. Now, if you listen to my toxic shame series, which if you haven't, what are you doing? Definitely go listen to it. In episode eight of the shame series, if you don't listen to all of it, go and listen to the first part of episode eight of the shame series, And if you need to, you can pause this podcast right now and write this down. Listen to episode eight of the toxic shame series and listen to the first part of the episode. I have timestamps in the episode description because I talk all about underworld experiences and this is really important. I want you to go and listen to that because at stage four of grief, when the depression sets in, that's when we can really start feeling like ending it all. This is a dark night of the soul you don't want to die a part of you wants to die though a part of you these parts that have been scapegoated and all of the narratives that have been lobbed onto you and the ways that you're now living your life in order to people please and that are out of integrity with your true self that is what wants to die but because we live in a society devoid of myth and meaning we no longer have these initiatory experiences Children and adolescents in ancient cultures were led through these initiatory rites, some of them even like almost Simulated a death experience, sometimes even simulated like going through a metaphorical womb in a cave like place that made these children feel like they were going from one phase of their life to another. This was very important in ancient cultures and it served a very important purpose. In the absence of these rituals and rites, part of the reason why many of us feel so empty and devoid of meaning and like we are arrested in our childlike state for our entire lives. So if you are in this depression stage of grieving, no, this is important. This is as what Lisa Miller, who I interviewed on my podcast, depression is a knock at the door. Your symptoms are your saviors. They're alerts from your body and mind and soul that say, Hey, you are living out of integrity." Your body is trying to help you and this depression is trying to alert you that part of you wants to die, but you don't want to die. And I'm speaking directly to you if you're stuck in these feelings because I know that. So go back and listen to the first part of the toxic shame series where I talk all about these underworld experiences and I think you'll find that to be very cathartic and helpful. Next, the final stage of process of grieving is acceptance. Only when we move through denial, anger, bargaining, and depression only when we dive down to the pits of hell, of these underworld experiences, can we move through the hero's journey, right? The hero leaves home, goes and faces very scary things, slays the dragon, is terrified and then comes back and returns to his community transformed with lessons to share. Stage five of the grieving process is acceptance. In this stage, this is when you come to terms with the reality of the loss and you begin to find ways to move forward. So for an adult child of scapegoating abuse, this might involve acknowledging the role that you played in your family system, recognizing that it was not your fault, and then seeking ways to heal, grow from, and throw away this assigned role. Now, acceptance is the hardest phase. And the thing is, I found that most mental health creators kind of gloss over this. They're just like, find acceptance and self-compassion, like, right, just leave it at that. And the thing is, is that it's very individual, the way that you move through acceptance. But what I want to try to do is actually dig to the root of acceptance. So let's just do this together. First, I want to tackle something that I think is a very common question. I know it's one that I had. Why is acceptance so fucking hard? And why is it so hard to move through this stage and move to this stage in the grieving process, especially for those of us who have endured this scapegoating abuse? The stage of acceptance is particularly challenging for scapegoated individuals because of the deep wounds inflicted by this dysfunctional family experiences that they endured. Scapegoating often ingrains beliefs of unworthiness, guilt, and toxic shame, and can really convince you that you are truly responsible for the dysfunction in your family. Acceptance requires acknowledging the painful reality of the past, including the distorted dynamics that you were forced into. The fear of confronting this pain and facing the emotional repercussions, as well as the potential disintegration of your former understanding of your family dynamics can make this stage really daunting. And so this is why it's so scary and hard to even begin to get here. Another thing that's particularly difficult about acceptance and you'll often hear is How is acceptance different from condoning? Because some people really, understandably, don't even want to touch the idea of acceptance because they misunderstand it and misconstrue it with immediately forgiving and condoning abusive behavior. Acceptance doesn't imply condoning or excusing behaviors that led to your scapegoating abuse. What acceptance does involve is recognizing the past for what it was, acknowledging the impact it had on your emotional well-being, grieving those losses that we talked about, and allowing space to release the grip that your dysfunctional family dynamic has on your identity and self-worth without denying the pain that it caused you. Do you see what I'm saying? So you're not forgiving anyone. You're not saying it's okay, but you are doing this for you. You are saying, I am allowing the grip, the stranglehold that my dysfunctional family dynamic has on me. This isn't mine. I'm giving it back, but I'm also acknowledging and validating my own pain and understanding that I am going to move through this. I know that there are going to be many of you listening that are not ready to be in this state of acceptance and that's okay because there's five stages of fucking grief for a reason you need to go through all of them and you will get to acceptance in your own time but let's say that someone came up to me and said molly what would you say to a scapegoated person who refuses to accept i would encourage that person to explore the fear or resistance That is preventing them from moving towards acceptance. Unraveling these emotions with compassion is a vital step toward reclaiming your power and self identity. It's important to remind yourself over and over that acceptance isn't condoning or endorsing the past, it is a stepping stone for you towards healing and freedom, self liberation. So what happens when a scapegoated adult child refuses to move through the acceptance phase? This can lead to prolonged emotional suffering and hinder your personal growth, to put it mildly. We talked about how you can get stuck and remain trapped in these maladaptive coping mechanisms, patterns of victimhood, replaying the role of scapegoat in various aspects of your life and in different contexts like what happened to me and then these unresolved feelings and suppressed emotions as we have talked about ad nauseum can manifest as that chronic anxiety depression low self-worth and then eventually manifest into a physical disease or disorder and it's also going to wreak havoc on your ability to form healthy friendships and intimate partnerships. So the thing is not moving to the acceptance phase, refusing to move through these stages of grief, you're only hurting yourself. So how can you begin just dip your toe into the process of acknowledging and accepting the role that you played within your family system? It's first going to start with self-compassion work and a lot of it, and I'm not just going to give you like practice self-compassion, read the book Radical Self-Compassion by Kristen Neff, and that's N-E-F-F, Radical Self-Compassion, run, don't walk and get that book. It will walk you through everything. It is one of the best out there, and I can't recommend it enough. I would have to do multiple episodes on self-compassion which I may choose to do in the future but for now go get that book. You need to recognize that you were a victim of a dysfunctional system and that this role was imposed upon you and you did not choose it for yourself. I really encourage journaling practices writing about your experiences, emotions and then reflecting on these can help you gain clarity on the impact of the role that you were assigned. And of course, therapeutic support. You can seek the guidance of a therapist and this therapist should be experienced in trauma and family dynamics. I highly recommend somatic experiencing, family systems therapy is really powerful, family constellations therapy, someone who understands intergenerational trauma and family systems and the different dysfunctional roles it's very very important. If you just go to an ABC 123 type therapist that's going to throw a couple of CBT exercises at you or try to label you with some kind of disorder or dysfunction and tell you that you need to move on or stuff like that, run. <laughs> because it's not going to help you. You need to remember that therapists work for you. If you get a vi- bad icky vibe, you need to find another one and Make sure that you're finding someone with experience in these different modalities. You might not have access to therapy, which is understandable, many people don't. So what are some practical things that you can do, some exercises and suggestions that will help you recognize that you weren't at fault for this dysfunction? Reflect on how the role was assigned to you without your consent. Consider the dysfunctional behaviors of other members of your family and how they contributed to the overall family system. Remind yourself that no one deserves to be scapegoated and that these dynamics were beyond your control. Two things that you can do that will really help you. Write a letter to your younger self. Put a picture of your young self up somewhere where you can see it. And it's going to be probably pretty painful. You might have tears come. That's a good thing. That's part of metabolizing and digesting these feelings. And in this letter to your younger self, express compassion and understanding for the role that they were forced into. You might choose to make some art about this, paint a picture. Express this in a way that feels right for you. I love the act of letter writing, tearing it up and burning it and ritualizing it. It's very powerful for me. Next, write a letter to the parent or caregiver that took part in these scapegoating behaviors. And maybe you also want to write a letter to the parent that maybe you felt enabled the parent who is the kind of ringleader of the scapegoating. You can even write a letter to siblings that you felt also enabled the behavior. Write these letters so that they will not be sent because what you want to do is get out all of your feelings, no filter, be as angry as you want to. This is for processing your feelings and write these letters to not be sent with the intention that they're going to be ripped up and burned. I've had a trouble even writing in journals in the past and really experiencing and expressing my deepest emotions because I was terrified that I would, my paranoid ass was like freaked out that I would die and someone would read my journals. (laughs) So Rip these pages out, write it all out, get everything out, be as fiery and angry as you want, then rip up the letters and burn them. Obviously do this in a safe way where you're not going to start a fucking fire. Please. I do not want some arson to be tied to my podcast. So do this in a safe way. You can even do it in your sink. You know, that's a really safe way to do it as long as you don't set off any fire alarms. I have like a copper bowl that I use and then I burn uh, the paper in a copper bowl outside on my stone patio. And then as soon as all the ashes are burnt up, I make sure they're all burnt up. I dig a hole in the ground. I pour the ashes in and I cover it up and I make an actual like ritual of like, I'm releasing this now. It's a really powerful Very, very powerful stuff. You don't even have to see it as witchcraft or anything like that. Ritualizing things like this have powerful effects because you're doing something with it. It's helping your body. Your body will recognize that you are moving through this. Another thing that's really helped me is dream work, writing down my dreams and then engaging in active imagination with the characters that are in my dreams. If you're not familiar in Jungian analysis, dream work is really cool. And anything that you see in your dreams, if it's a character, a person, a person you know, in your dreams, they're representing usually a part of yourself. And you can get a lot of goodies from your dreams if you wake up. And if you're anything like me and you have a hard time remembering your dreams, You can keep a dream diary by your phone. For me, I sleep with my husband and so I literally don't wanna like turn on my lamp and start fucking writing. So I do keep my phone next to my bed and I always write down my dreams as soon as I wake up from them, even if it's at three in the morning, because as soon as you start even writing down little bits of what you can remember, you'll be surprised that more and more of your dreams will start coming back to you. It is a thing that you have to start developing a skill set for, and it takes time. So just be patient with yourself. Another thing that you can do is create a family genogram. I've talked about this. All you have to do is throw how to make a family genogram for family trauma into Google. You'll find a million different articles, probably podcast episodes about how to make these. Don't get freaked out because it's going to look like this complicated chart. It's worth the work. A family genogram is essentially a way to visually map out generational patterns. And this exercise will really help you understand how dysfunction might have been passed down in your family. It is a worthwhile exercise to engage in. So how can a scapegoated adult child begin to heal and grow beyond this assigned role? First, You have to realize that you need to get to a point where you can reclaim your identity. Start to engage in activities that align with your authentic self, your authentic interests. This will help you gradually move away from the confines of this assigned role that was foisted upon you. You can also start learning about boundaries learn to establish healthy boundaries and relationships to prevent being drawn into dynamics that mirror the scapegoat role. The concept of boundaries has really been misconstrued and overused, especially in pop psychology over the last few years. It's also been turned kind of toxic where people are just using the idea of boundaries to like Cut people off with no explanation, or expect if you don't meet my every need, I'm going to enforce a boundary on you, right? Boundaries are just about learning what kind of behaviors you won't accept. Maybe write that down. Create an, a journaling exercise. Write down all of the things that you do not want to tolerate from people, things that you won't tolerate. Next to that, I want you to write down how you could communicate that in a healthy way to someone. And third, next to that, write down what kind of consequence you could put in place if someone crosses that boundary. Because if you do any work on boundaries, you'll realize that first and foremost, before setting boundaries, you have to figure out what the fuck you will and won't put up with. And many of us who have been abused and scapegoated our entire lives just have no concept of any kind of boundaries. We just want everyone to fill our emotional holes. We'll let everyone walk all over us until we're about ready to explode because we feel so put upon and we're like full of rage and passive aggression. And when in reality, we could have just set healthy boundaries with people and not gotten ourselves into this position setting a boundary means saying like here's something i'm not okay with i'm not all right with xyz behavior and here is what's going to happen if you do xyz behavior again it's important not to make boundaries manipulative or abusive like a good example of this is if somebody for example is borrowing your car and you allow someone to borrow your car But every time they return your car, they're like returning it with like an empty tank of gas or like a quarter tank of gas when it was full. Gas is expensive, right? But you don't want to piss them off. And so you're like, okay, uh," but then eventually you feel more and more and more and more angry, right? Whereas if before you would have loaned your car and said, Hey, I'm totally fine with you borrowing my car. But if you do, can you please return it with the same amount of gas that you borrowed it with? No problem, right? So, then if the person then returns your car with half a tank of gas, like missing, and they didn't fill it up, say, I noticed that you brought my car back with XYZ, half a tank, quarter tank of gas. When you borrowed it, I asked you if you could please return it with the same amount of gas that you got it with. I'm happy to loan you my car, but next time I really ask you to honor that because if not, I won't be able to do this favor for you again. It's very simple. And the thing is, if the person's pissed off about that, that's on them, not on you. (laughs) It's not your fault if you communicate something in a healthy way. Their reaction is their problem. And it's really fucking scary to start doing this. I like get hives when I think about setting boundaries sometimes or just saying no to simple things. But this is part of reclaiming your identity and learning how to heal and grow beyond this role. Otherwise, you're just going to keep being passive-aggressive, feel overwhelmed, and feel like people are walking all over you. There are also various therapeutic modalities that are incredible for healing beyond the scapegoat role. And these are going to be therapies like Jungian analysis, art therapy, and narrative therapy. These types of modalities help you explore deeper layers of identity than just your childhood wounds, right? You can heal and transmute these wounds if you can't afford Jungian analysis, which I cannot. And the thing is, many of these more, these methodologies that are more in depth, and they, if you work with a Jungian analyst, for example, this might be something you do for years. And a lot of these therapists that are doing art therapy, Jungian analysis, narrative therapy, they're not taking insurance for very specific reasons because we have really, it's not the therapist's fault, it's our fucked up mental health system. And I could do a whole episode on that. We've talked a little bit about it. But if you're like me and you can't afford that or you don't have health insurance, which I don't right now, you can look into the work of Jungian analysts. I just interviewed one of the most prolific ones on this podcast. Read books by James Hollis, Marion Woodman, Mary Louise von Franz. Mary Louise von Franz is a Jungian analyst. She's no longer alive. She studied directly with Carl Jung, but she wrote some amazing books about how we can kind of heal um, and find kind of mirrors and childhood wounds through fairy tales. And This is where I've found my most profound healing is through the work of particularly female Jungian analysts. Another amazing person I recommend diving into her work is Clarissa Pinkola Estes. She wrote the book, Women Who Run With Wolves. She has amazing books, and this can really help you find a deeper, more archetypal connection to your identity rather than just these labels that were given to you. Another part of healing through this scapegoat role and just moving past it is mindfulness and self-care. Cultivate your own mindfulness practices. Mindfulness and self-care are another two terms that have just been completely blown apart by pop psychology and have almost lost all of their meaning. But mindfulness for me looks like gardening without any music or podcasts on. I'm just focusing on being in my garden I never thought I would like gardening, but I found it to be like my trauma recovery tool number one of the last few weeks. And when I'm doing it, I'm finding that I'm having realizations. So then I write them down. I highly recommend taking walks where you're just maybe listening to calming music or maybe just mindfully walking even doing mindfulness of like washing the dishes feeling the water on your hands taking a bath and like touching different parts of your body not even like in a sexual way i mean do you do what you want nothing wrong with that but i'm just saying like sometimes peter levine in his book on sexual healing which i also love he encourages like taking a shower and letting water hit different parts of your body and saying like this is my arm this is my leg this is my stomach, right? And feeling that, really getting back into your body, cooking food for people that you love. It's very grounding, very, very important. Be good at feeding and hydrating yourself. And sometimes when we're depressed, it can be so easy to like not take a shower. Not brush our teeth, you know, wake up in the morning, take a shower, brush your teeth, comb your hair, put on like clean, comfy clothes, and maybe go sit in the sun for five minutes. That in itself, drinking a big glass of water, that in itself is like guaranteed to set my day on a better footing. Don't neglect these very basic needs making activities, needs making, needs meeting activities very, very important. Right now you're seeing the capitalization of self-care. Self-care is like, go get a facial, go pay for a manicure. No, self-care is like being your own good enough parent, feeding yourself, hydrating yourself, washing yourself, loving yourself, laying in bed and cuddling yourself, you know, lighting a candle, being relaxed, creating a safe, quiet space when you're feeling overwhelmed, talking to yourself supportedly, taping um, affirmations onto your bathroom mirror that mean something to you. There's a beautiful thing that I took from Catholicism. I'm not Catholic, uh, but I grew up Catholic, and I still follow a couple of um, practitioners that are Catholic priests, but they participate in something called centering prayer and more contemplative Christianity, which is a beautiful marriage of christianity and like zen buddhism it's really really cool cool stuff is going on with spirituality right now like integral spirituality realizing that there's a common connecting thread in all of it but there's a practice in catholicism that anyone can adopt and it's called Lexio divina and essentially it's just people would probably that are doing this pick the bible and it's kind of like letting letting a book Maybe this is a book that you love, that is just a book of quotes that means something to you. I have various books like my tarot books or um, even like a book of mythology, whatever it is, it's a special book to you that has a lot of spiritual wisdom that means something to you. And it could be the Bible. Maybe that's something that you want to do. That's cool too. It could be the book of Psalms. It could be anything. But this is a practice that you could do in the morning where you let the book, it's almost like imagine drawing a tarot card, but letting the book open to whatever page feels right for you and wherever your eye is drawn, that's the message you need for the day. And when I do Luxio Divina in the morning with like any of my little spiritual books that I love it's almost a way to reconnect with my higher self and it really sets the stage for my day. I set a grounding intention around whatever that reading is and it's a way that i take care of myself and nurture myself. So even if you don't do that, cultivate practices that mean something to you and stick with them because little kids, they need structure and routine. And if you're reparenting yourself, You have to create that caring structure and routine for yourself too. Part of this healing as well, growing past the scapegoat role, is making a support network or as the drag community call it, right? Like a chosen family. You need a supportive network of friends, mentors, or support groups that validate your experiences and encourage growth. And... There are a bunch of free communities that you can find online that are helpful and supportive. Even if you aren't an alcoholic or something, there are codependents, anonymous type uh, groups that you can join for free. Al-Anon is adult, um, I think adult children of alcoholics, where if you've had parents or family members that were addicts, there are free groups, 12-step groups that you can join. And some people are really turned off by 12 step groups, but I'll tell you, I worked in drug and rehab facilities when I was in college. And the thing is they're free and they're some of the most incredibly healing experiences I've had just watching. I, I took The um, clients we called the people that attended our rehab facility, the clients, we took them to these AA um, and NA, which is Narcotics Anonymous meetings, and this is a group of people that are talking openly about their shame, they're supporting one another, and it's a resource for you. Most people are turned off by um, 12-step communities because of the quote-unquote God stuff, but I find this to be really It's a really crappy way of discounting the power of these communities because I think it reflects people that immediately split on this are probably people who have experienced religious trauma, which is fair enough. They don't, they feel like 12 step groups are culty, but what most people don't know is that the people that developed, I think it's two guys that developed the 12 step program got their inspiration from Carl Jung's work and Carl Jung was not a fan of Christianity, mind you but he was a fan of finding the divine within yourself and finding a connection to something bigger than you and seeing that you are a part of a much bigger picture. And that's the spirituality that is talked about in 12 step communities. They talk about a higher power and that can be whatever you want, but it's just trusting in something bigger than yourself. And that has been incredibly helpful for me. For the longest time, I was just a very agnostic person. I didn't want to talk about spirituality or anything like that because I had been so burnt out on it. And I just saw what it did to people that were very dogmatic. I saw the homophobia, the closed-mindedness. I didn't want anything to do with it. But then I started looking into depth psychology. I started studying um, the work of Carl Jung and other Jungian analysts. I started looking into the work of Joseph Campbell myth and mysticism and studying the work of mystics of all different types like sufi mystics who are you know a sect sufism is a sect of islam um christian mystics i love the work of different like shamanic practitioners carlos castaneda all of these more mystical people who have helped me get an understanding of life from A higher plane of existence. I even enjoy the work of like Graham Hancock. There's a book called Supernatural, which is amazing. Connecting ourselves back to our ancestors. Maybe look into the spirituality that your ancestors practiced a long time ago. Maybe there's some gems that you can connect with there. Whatever you want to do, I'm the queen of creating your own pick and mix bag of spirituality. But I do believe, I really do think that if we think of ourselves as just an individual with no connection to something else, that healing and finding an integrated sense of identity can become almost impossible. If you're listening to this and you are interested in kind of dipping your toe into this, you can sign up to become a premium submarine. And I did an entire 21 episode series called The Hero's Journey and it walks you through the 21 cards of the major arcana of the tarot. And the tarot is full of incredible symbolism. And it walks you through the first cards of this major arcana suite of the tarot are literally walking you through the pits of hell through healing and into the return. And it's a beautiful metaphor. And I literally do guided visualizations in this series, and it is something that I have worked very, very hard on. You can also find an article I wrote about the hero's journey on my Substack. So you can go to backroomtheborderline.com, go to my Substack, and find the hero's journey post that I made. And then that will also take you into how to sign up and access those episodes. So if this is something you want to dive into, I've literally done like. 20 hours of episodes that you can literally work your way through with guided visualizations and exercises to dip your toe into that. All right, my friend, I hope you enjoyed this deep dive into the scapegoat role. And I hope that you take your time with this. I hope that the things that I shared will help you begin dipping your toe into the recovery process. Don't forget to be really, really kind and gentle with yourself because it's a long road and it requires going through some of those underworld experiences and daring to endure that to come out on the other side and that's it for the free portion of today's episode of back from the borderline next up is the back half of the episode which is available only to my paying subscribers but if you're tuning in from the public back from the borderline feed you will get a free preview lucky you To unlock full episodes, as well as hundreds of hours of bonus content, you can become a premium submarine. There's even an additional tier on Patreon called Ultra Premium Submarine, which allows you to unlock my private voice notes. These are just more intimate moments where I'm usually sitting out and having a matcha on my back porch and chatting with you about what I'm going through. It's just like having your BFF in your ear, just chatting about recovery and all the shit that comes along with it. Usually I share like some darker stuff that I'm going through because it's behind a paywall. (laughs) So to sign up today, check out the link in the show notes or visit backfromtheborderline.com. So let's get into today's premium portion of the podcast. All right, everyone, we're diving into some questions again. I'm getting so many listener questions, listener voicemails. I love them. And you know, I've talked before about how the majority of the voicemails I get are breakups like how do I deal with breakups and so sometimes I have to just like not do the breakup thing because I've literally talked about breakups so many times ad nauseum but I just got like some varsity level breakup voicemails two-parters and we're going to tackle them because they've got some really fucking nuanced dynamics so let's take this First, listener voicemail from Jocelyn. Fun fact, Jocelyn is literally one of my favorite names. It is the name of a character in A Knight's Tale, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. And I always said that if I had a little girl, I would want to name her Jocelyn. So just, just, I just felt like I had to share that. I just love that name. It's so beautiful. But anyway, let's hear from Jocelyn.
2: Hi, Molly. My name is Jocelyn. Um, I've been listening to your podcast for a while now. This is another one about just dealing with heartbreak. My situation's a little bit more complex, but uh, my ex and I broke up almost two months ago after about three years of dating. And what's a little different is the complexity of our relationship. Our parents are dating, and my mom was the first woman my ex's dad dated after losing his wife to cancer. So, like I said, complex. But I'm just having trouble accepting that the relationship is actually over, even though I'm the one that ended things. I will say I told my ex when I broke up with him that I was still very much in love with him. And I'd always be open to a possibility of us in the future. Things had just gotten really toxic and we had been through a lot over the course of our relationship. And I felt that we needed some time apart to work on ourselves and just get to a place of healing. But I found out not even a week after we stopped dating that he was on Dating Gaps. And I'm just really struggling with those really ugly feelings of that he never loved me, what we had was never real, and that I am just unlovable. If you could give me some advice about how to move on even though I'm not ready. I thank you for everything you do. Bye.
0: I then received part two of this voicemail from Jocelyn.
2: Hi, Molly. I hate to be that person, but I just sent a voicemail. Like I said, things had kind of gotten really toxic towards the end. I hate to admit it, but I think after years of just being in survival mode, I for sure became abusive. I think we both did. We had gone through a rehab stint very early on. But then the first year, my ex was in rehab. And then he was very suicidal for, I think, the first year and a half. And things kind of switched towards the last year, six months to a year of our relationship. I got diagnosed. And, um, yeah, I was pretty fucked up, not gonna lie, but I'm just dealing with those really ugly feelings of shame and guilt and feeling like my ex never loved me because he was on dating gaps and he's just so adamant about moving on. But I could really use some advice, especially because I'm still in love and I don't know how to not be in love. But thank you for everything you do.
0: Whoa, Jocelyn, this is probably the dooziest of doozies of any breakup voicemail I've ever gotten. This is very complicated. You said it multiple times, but it is. The situation is so complex and immediately just what I thought off the bat was trauma bonding. And it sounds like this relationship from the beginning was fraught with both of you going through your own individual trauma. Your ex lost his mom to a battle with cancer, which is its own beast. And then made even more complicated by the fact that your parents are dating. To me also, it sounds like your heart knows that this relationship is not healthy love. It was a trauma bond. And You wanted space, but seeing him move on so quickly is making you second-guess yourself. And I don't know if it's that him that you want. It's almost the fact that you're kind of feeling rejected and abandoned, right? Of course, if somebody moves on quickly, it's only natural for you to think, did you even love me? Like, is it even hard for you? You're going through all these feelings and it seems like he's moving on quickly. But I want you to know that even if someone is on a dating app, or they're forcing themselves to move on, they might just be shoving down their feelings and trying to get over someone by getting under someone else. You know that phrase, right? And that might make you cringe because thinking about the person that you love being with another person, it's like a stab in the chest. It's hard to even explain. It sounds like we can analyze this situation from multiple psychological perspectives, but I think that we need to take into account trauma, addiction, and childhood wounds. And everyone knows, listen to my podcast, knows that I love Jungian analysis and depth psychology. So I'm just going to be analyzing this through that lens. And this, I'm not a doctor, not a therapist. I'm just somebody who has lived experience and I do my best to give advice the complexity of your breakup seems to be influenced by various underlying factors so childhood wounds and unresolved trauma can contribute to patterns of dysfunctional behavior and emotional struggles that's no question and it seems like in the very beginning of your relationship. All of what you went through was deeply intertwined with a lot of unresolved emotional pain and struggles, probably from both of your early life experiences. You mentioned the presence of addiction issues for both of you early on in your relationship. I wonder if you've considered that both of you may have been drawn to one another due to these shared vulnerabilities. Addiction, often arises as a way that we use to cope with our emotional pain and traumatic experiences. And you mentioned that your ex struggles with suicidal thoughts. And clearly that's reflecting a profound level of emotional distress that contributed to the intensity of your connection. And as I mentioned on the last episode where I gave advice to one of the other listeners who called in, asking about how to deal with a particularly charged relationship, sometimes intensity, we can confuse that with love. But there is healthy and unhealthy love. And that moves me to the concept of trauma bonding. Trauma bonding develops when intense emotional experiences are shared within a relationship, creating a really strong, but most often super unhealthy and unstable bond. And this could explain your difficulty in fully accepting the breakup. This push-pull dynamic of wanting to break up while still expressing love and openness to getting back together, it really reflects the ambivalence often seen in trauma-bonded relationships because you're expressing that you want space and you want to break up, but also like don't move on and may I still love you and maybe we can get back in the future, right? There's an element that he can't put a pause on his life to wait for you to be ready, right? So he needs to deal with the breakup and have the space to deal with this in the way that he's going to. And if that means getting on apps and Burning himself out in that way or moving on, you're just going to have to accept that. When I speak about ambivalence, right? Trauma bonding is marked by ambivalence, and ambivalence is a mixture of both positive and negative emotions. And trauma bonded relationships can feel really intense and emotionally charged, but they're also characterized by a roller coaster of emotions, including attachment dependency, fear, and even moments of euphoria. In trauma-bonded relationships, this ambivalence arises from this juxtaposition or like high contrast, that's what that means, of the following dynamics. Individuals in trauma-bonded relationships struggle with this attachment and dependency up and down. They feel a strong attachment to one another And this is driven by their shared experiences. And this could be like the suicidal ideation, the addiction, the abuse. And this attachment can lead to emotional dependency where the two of you may have learned to rely on each other for emotional validation and support, where that should have been coming from within yourselves. There is also the ambivalence of fear and control. Fear and anxiety can emerge due to the unpredictability and volatility of the relationship you had with your ex. And this fear of abandonment or loss might have actually been what was keeping you tied together, despite how toxic your bond was. And maybe it wasn't actually healthy love keeping you together. It was fear and control. Another ambivalent aspect of trauma-bonded relationships is this intermittent reinforcement pattern. So the relationship with your ex sounds like it involved this intermittent positive experiences like moments of intimacy or support which reinforce the belief that this bond is worth preserving and these positive moments contrast with the negative aspects of your relationship and the difficulty you're describing in fully accepting the breakup and your contradictory emotions of like wanting to move on and work on each other's problems and healing highlights the ambivalence inherent in trauma bonding you mentioning that you are still in love with your partner but you also want to break up and maybe you want to get back together in the future this is a perfect example of this push-pull dynamic and This ambivalence can be explained by this really strong mix of factors such as the shared addiction struggles, the emotional dependency, and these history that the two of you had of intense emotional experiences. The unhealthy nature of how you're handling this situation lies in your attempts to maintain a connection that might not be conducive to your well-being. And... By expressing your openness to reconciliation, wanting to get back together, despite really knowing that this is a toxic relationship, you're perpetuating this cycle of trauma bonding. This ambivalence is inevitably going to lead to confusion, emotional turmoil, and an inability for either one of you to move on. And your feelings of being unlovable, along with this belief that you even stated yourself things had gotten really toxic, suggests that you might be internalizing the negative dynamics of your relationship. And this self-perception aligns with the common aftermath of trauma-bonded relationships where your self-worth is really, really compromised. For you, it's going to come down to recognizing these patterns of ambivalence, understanding where they're coming from, and working on cultivating self-awareness within yourself and identifying and challenging the destructive aspects of this relationship, it doesn't sound healthy at all. It doesn't sound good for you. And I think that your higher self took a good seat and told you this needs to end. And it's going to require you unraveling the complex web of emotions and dependencies and learning to prioritize your own well being over this ambivalence that's created by the trauma bond that you have with your ex partner. Now we're gonna get a little nerdy. So, you all know that I love Carl Jung. And from a Jungian perspective, your struggle, Jocelyn, to accept the breakup might be resolved to what Carl Jung referred to as like an animus projection. And these kind of archetypal energies can manifest as idealized notions of love and relationships causing difficulties when reality clashes with your projections. And the involvement of your mom and your ex's dad in a romantic relationship also might carry deeper symbolic unconscious dynamics than you even are aware of that really require some deep analysis and exploration on your part. let's talk about what is an animus projection. In Jungian psychology, the animus is the inner masculine aspect within the psyche of a woman. Alright everyone, you know what that means. That's it for today's free version of Back from the Borderline. You'll definitely want to unlock the full version of this episode because I go in detail more about Jocelyn's situation. I'll dive into what animus projections look like, and also the more complicated dynamics of how to unravel yourself from a trauma-bonded relationship. The next voicemail that we tackle is from a listener named Jane, who's 18 years old and working to get herself out of a relationship where she feels like she and the person she's dating are at two different stages of their lives. I go into detail about the complicated dynamics that come from this exact scenario and how she can move on from this potential breakup. The last question that we tackle is from Lauren who called a few weeks ago, telling us about a complicated situation she had going on with seeing a coworker. And so I detail more about advice for her on what she should do about that dynamic. So, if you'd like to unlock the full version of this episode, as well as hundreds of hours of bonus content, visit backfromtheborderline.com or click the link in the episode description to become a premium submarine today. If you're not ready to become a premium submarine, you can support my work by rating the podcast, writing a review, or sharing this episode with someone you care about. Never forget, you haven't met all of you yet. Within your weakness, your inner chaos and disorder lies your greatest strength. Anyone, even you, can come back from the borderline. See you next Tuesday.
1: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.
3: Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details.
0: Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Back From the Borderline. If you'd like to receive my monthly written recovery musings via Substack directly to your inbox, send me a voicemail, join the Patreon community, or check out my Amazon book list recommendations, visit backfromtheborderline.com and click to access my link tree.